0: Amen. That is what we will talk about this morning, church. Good morning. Turning your Bibles to the book of Joshua. This morning I hope to preach uh, chapter 10, verse 16 through chapter 11, verse 9. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning. I know I can tend to be a little bit rather critical at times. Um, You know, when you hear theology and sometimes... Folks, theology just isn't quite on, and you you can kind of sit there and be a little nitpicky and a little critical. I, I I contend to be one of those people. I totally confess it. But but never is it more apparent, and never do I kind of feel the hair, you know, on my neck just stick up a bit when, than when I hear some of these Christianese phrases. You know, I mean, Christianese like they're like not quite exactly Christian, but they sound Christian. They sound like something we believe we should believe, like. Like, God helps those who help themselves. Does he now? <laughs> I don't know a single person who helps himself. I don't know a single person who's able to help himself. Or, or, or how about this? Well, this might, this might be my, my least favorite of all, is that God will never what? God will never give us more than we can handle. Isn't it funny how these phrases, they, they, they always take the onus off of God's provision and always put the onus right on man's work and man's ability. If there's anything that God does for us, it is He gives us more than we can handle. Constantly. A- everything He gives us in this life is, is, is more than we can handle. I, I cannot wake up in the morning and eat a bowl of cereal without the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't even do that. I, I, I am prone so, so prone to, to selfishness, to greed, to pride in everything that I do. And you're the same way. Friend, we we need the Lord in every situation, in every scenario, in every ambition, in every activity. We need the sanctifying work of the Lord in our lives. We cannot handle anything. Everything we will do apart from the Lord is sinful. Everything. And we come to phrases like God will never give us more than we can handle. And we just think way too much of ourselves. We think far too much of our abilities. We think far too much of our character. We think far too much of our motives. See, that is a lie for the pit of hell. The reality is, though, the good news and what the Bible teaches is that God will never give us more than He can handle. And that's the truth. And God's will for His people, for for Christians, is this. God's will for you, God's will for me, is that we, in all things, would be a God-dependent type of people. God's will in our lives, in every situation, no matter what you're going through this morning, friends, is that we would lean on the Lord. That we would seek His provision. That we would seek His sustenance. Not that we would rely on our wisdom. Not that we would rely on our power or our money or anything else in this world or our character or our intellect. Nothing. God created us to be dependent on Him. Left to ourselves, we are hopeless. Hear that this morning, friends. Left to yourself, you are utterly hopeless. My main point this morning is this, that our only hope in this life, only, our only hope in this life is Christ's work on our behalf. That is our only hope, is Christ's work on our behalf. Please follow along this morning. Hopefully you've made your way to to Joshua chapter 10, verse uh, verse 16. I will be reading through. 11, 9. This will be an extended read here, so follow along. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Macada. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks Of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at that time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remain to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Akadah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king to the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, as he did to its king, as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lashish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave to Lashish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Haram, king of Gezer, came up to help Lashish. And Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with them passed on from Lashish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lashish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. And Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it and he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent to Joab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shemron, and to the king of Ashaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chenarath, and in the lowland, and in uh, Nephath-dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east, in the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under uh, Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, and number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephath Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them, just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Point one All of those that seek to find rest in themselves will die. All of those who seek to find rest in themselves will die. You might recall from our last time in Joshua, last week, that the Lord supernaturally fought for the nation of Israel in their battle against the five kings of the Amorites. Rather than simply fleeing the land altogether or or pleading for mercy, instead we find that these Amorite kings waged war against the people of Israel and their ally Gibeon, and therefore they received the wrath of God as a result as these nations, they were thrown into a frenzy, they began to flee in every direction. But do you remember what happened? The Lord God played lawn darts and he threw giant hailstones from the sky and he ended up killing more people from these nations than Israel did with the sword. That's how the Lord handled his enemies. However, in verses 16 through 27 this morning, it gives us a picture of, of what happened to these kings specifically. It's as if Joshua gave us a bigger picture picture of what happened in Gibeon in verses 1 through 15, but then he gives us a, a more specific account of what happened to the kings in our passage this morning. So what happened to these kings that were so bold to go to war with God? You see, as they see these Hailstones flying from the sky and, and demolishing the people that they were meant to serve. Verse 16 tells us these cowardly kings went and hid in a cave. You know, of course, attempting to hide oneself from the Lord is one of the most common tactics in the Bible for people deep in sin. This is not the type of attitude that of someone that desires friendship with the Lord, who worships the Lord, or who desires to love the Lord more. This is the attitude of of someone who loves their sin more than they love the Lord. It is the attitude of someone who would rather cling to their sin rather than cling to God for mercy. You might recall from our, our time together last week that the Amorites, they were not just basically good people. And all, all of these things that we're reading this morning, it's a very violent text, isn't it? And he killed these, and he killed these, and killed these, and killed these, and, and, and guess what? And Joshua ain't done. But according to Genesis 15, the Israelites would enter into the Promised Land only after the iniquity of the Amorites had been completed. This means that because of their sin, God's patience had run out for the people of the land. God was bringing them under his judgment as a result. In fact, Leviticus 18, it really sheds some light onto why God was judging these nations. Leviticus 18, 24 through 30 points out that these nations living in the land had become totally corrupt and totally unclean. Their land is described as unclean. You see, the people of the land were perpetually guilty of the abominations that Leviticus described as vile before the Lord. They were morally immoral, they were, they were sexually immoral, they were, they were completely corrupt. Sound like a nation that you know of? And so, therefore, the Lord told Israel that the land itself was vomiting out the inhabitants of the land. It was vomiting. Experienced this last night with my son. He's not here this morning. Vomiting's not pretty. No one likes to think about vomiting. You know, that you don't. vomiting's not a, a, a pretty picture to think about. It's not a, a pretty d- discussion to have at dinner. You know, typically when you have guests who come over to your home, you don't think, hey, let's, let's talk about vomit. But this is the word. This unsettling word picture that the Lord God sovereignly used in Leviticus to describe something so vile and a people people so vile. You see, when our bodies vomit, we are removing impure food that simply cannot stay there anymore. It must go. You see, these people who lived in the land, they were not basically good people who were blindsided by these savage Israelites. They were people who hated the Lord, who hated the people of the Lord, and who deserved the judgment of God. They're hiding from the Lord, and our text this morning is an example of their depravity. They were not in awe of his holiness, they were not moved to seek mercy as they saw his power. Like Adam, like Jonah, and many others, they hid themselves from the Lord. Then notice what happens in verse 17. They were found. They were found. Their their strategy did not work. You see, friends, you cannot hide from the Lord. You cannot hide from Him. Hebrews 4.13 tells us this, that no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom we must give an account. He sees us, in all places, at all times. And we will give an account for every single one of those seasons. Yet how often do we try and hide from the Lord? How often do we try and hide? We foolishly think that we can hide our sin from him. But know this, he sees it all. He knows it all. You know, even when we deceive ourselves into thinking that we aren't really in sin or we aren't really as bad as, you know, we're making it out to be, the Lord sees the heart. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be tricked. He sees us clearly as we are. He sees us in every season. He sees us at every moment. He knows our every motive. Truly, friends, Nothing, nothing, nothing can be hidden from the Lord. So why would we seek to hide from the Lord? Why would we continue, friends, to hide our sin? Why? You see, I think because we often mistake God's forbearance and patience for forgetfulness on God's part or tolerance on God's part. We think that because God hasn't given us over to his full wrath right now in our sin, that we can simply continue to sin and punt to live another day. We presume on God's grace. We think that because we've bypassed severe punishment in a season of sin, that it isn't coming at all. I imagine that's what the way that the Amorites might have felt in that cave. You know, see, as they hid in that cavern in verse 18, it tells us that Joshua took those giant stones and he he rolled them over the mouth of that cave where they were trapped. And so they trapped those Amorites in there and they could not get out. Since they were trapped, the Israelites were able to pursue the rest of the inhabitants of the land in order to put them to death. This is outlined in verses 19 through 20. While judgment was delayed for the kings for a moment, the rest of the subjects were put to death. Can you imagine what it was like sitting there in that cave in the meantime? Judgment was delayed. Their lives were spared for a moment, yet they remained in literal and in physical darkness. The whole time. They would not witness the glory of the Lord ever again. They would not witness his mercy. They would never hear of his grace again. In that moment, while they thought their lives were being prolonged, God was giving them over to their sin for a time to be judged fully by God. Friend, as we sit here and look at the five Amorite kings this morning, I want us to learn from them. Let us see the folly of what it looks like to rebel against the Lord and attempt to hide from Him, to, to attempt to hide our sin from Him. As we read these passages of Scripture, you know, it's easy for us to say, You fools, nobody can hide from God. You think that you can hide from him simply by by hiding in a cave? You think you can hide from God? Amorite kings, that is an ignorant plan. It far too often, friends, we seek to live in hidden sin and presume on the grace of God because we are so good at hiding sin from our family, from our friends, and from our church. We think that we're safe. Yet, I want us to know this, in such moments, we sit in darkness. We sit in darkness. In moments, we say things like, oh, well, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. Friend, do you know (laughs) that that's worse? Do you know that, that God's standard of judgment is higher than any? standard of judgment that any of us are going to put upon you or your wife's going to put on you or your friends are going to put upon you? Our standard is fickle. God's standard is holy and perfect and righteous and just. A standard that I and you and everyone you know fall well short of. See, the Bible speaks of Christians as people who walk in the light not as people who are content in darkness. They live in the light. They bring their sin before the Lord. Yes, they sin, but they repent. They they, they confess their sin to him. They repent and they, they do not walk in it. And therefore, they do not walk in condemnation. Do you want evidence that you're truly saved, friends? Do you want evidence? It's just not what we've heard in 1 John over and over Your life will be characterized by ongoing repentance in this life, not by walking in darkness. When we walk in unrepentant sin, we live in darkness. We actively identify as those who are going to receive the judgment of God, friends. Friends, is this not an extremely scary thing? Allow me to be provocative. This should literally scare the hell out of you. Of course, there's a chance that if you are comfortable in your sin, you are comfortable living in darkness, you are comfortable excusing your sin over and over and over, there is a chance, dear friend, that you are not redeemed. My encouragement is would be to bring your sin to the Lord. Do not hide. Do not rebel. Know this. He stands ready to forgive you and to wash you and to make you clean. He stands ready to give you a clear conscience before the Lord. Now, there may be earthly consequences, but because of Christ's atoning work on our behalf, when we bring our sin to the Lord, We can fully stand forgiven with no condemnation in this life at all. At all. It's a reason to rejoice. So do not roll the dice. You know what I mean? Do not go a day longer walking in your sin. You never know this, friends, hear me. You never know when the Lord just might give you over fully and finally to your sin. Will you play roulette like that? You never know the last time you will hear the gospel. The last time you'll hear the call to repent. The last time you'll hear the message of Christ crucified. Today, right now, might be the last time that you hear this call, ever. It might be. And so I plead with you, dear friends, and I'm not trying to manipulate you in any way, shape, or form. There was a last time for these kings. I plead with you. Repent and walk in the light. There's no point in hiding. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 tells us that the Lord will one day bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Do you know what's more shameful than your wife, your children, your coworkers, or your church? finding out about your sin, standing before a holy God who offered you mercy should you repent, and giving an account of your life before him one day, knowing that you never repented and trusted in Christ. That will be the ultimate moment of shame. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 3.13, just in case you think, Brian, you're preaching to Christians Hebrews 3.13 says this, Exhort one another, Christians, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is how we're supposed to talk to one another. This is me exhorting you, and I know by God's grace you will exhort me. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what happens to the hard-hearted? What happens to the rebel? What happens to those who are given over to the darkness? Their time of reckoning comes. The rebel will meet his judge. This is exactly what happens in verses 22-27. through 27. The time of judgment for the kings had come. The stone was rolled away from the cave and the kings were brought out of darkness and into light. But it wasn't a salvific light. It was a light that exposed them as they are. It exposed their vile standing before the Lord. it, it exposed their, their sinfulness and exposed the fact that they needed judgment. In verse twenty four, Joshua he orders the the chiefs of the men to, to step on the necks of these kings. I want you to remember something. Just, these are real stories with real people. These are these are real feet that went under the real necks of, of real kings can you think of anything more demeaning? Your enemy is standing over you with their worn, torn feet stepping on your neck. They stand there looking down at you. Yet you cannot even make eye contact because you know your fate is certain. So Joshua puts these kings to death. And he hangs each and every one of them on a tree. And then they take their lifeless carcasses off the tree and they throw them back in the cave where they attempted to hide themselves. You see, their place of burial was so symbolic of of their eternal reality. It was darkness that they craved on earth and now it was darkness that they would receive for eternity. You see, what is... Perhaps the most interesting thing about this passage is that the death of these kings was meant to bring encouragement to God's people. That's the funny thing. Look at verse 25. As the feet of the mighty men of Israel are on the necks of the five Amorite kings, Joshua repeats this oft-repeated phrase from the book of Joshua. Joshua. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies whom you will fight. This is meant to charge them with encouragement and trust in the Lord. See, the Israelites could walk confidently. They could walk unhindered. They had no need to fear because the Lord God walked among them. It was the Lord who would defeat their enemies. You see that, right? It wasn't Israel that would defeat their enemies. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, don't fear Israel because you will defeat your enemies. It says, do not fear because God would defeat the enemies. God will put his feet on their necks. God will bring them to justice. This is exactly what we see in the text as well. Consider verses 29 through 42. The enemies of Yahweh... And the land were put to total destruction. Total. Men, women, children, kings. The Lord brought judgment to all of them. Makedah judged. Every person in it judged. Not a person remained in the city. Not a single king sat on the throne. They were all judged. The same could be said of the people of Libna, Lashish, Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, Debir judged. Not a person remained. The Lord Himself defeated His enemies in the land. Verse 40 tells us this that Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the lowland, and the slopes, all of their kings. The Lord delivered every last one of them to Joshua and the Israelites. Every last one who took up arms against the Lord. Everyone who rebelled against the Lord. Everyone who trusted in their own way, trusted in their own strength, trusted in their own might, trusted in their own horses, trusted in their own chariots. What happened? They were judged. They died. Period. All of them. Every last one. No one made it. brings us to chapter 11, where we really see Israel's greatest challenge yet in the book of Joshua. This also brings us to point two. All those who look to Christ will live. Amen? All those who look to Christ will live. You see, after the Israelites took control of the southern part of the Promised Land, the kings of the northern areas of Canaan, they took notice. You see, we don't see in chapter 11, we don't see five kings rise up against Israel. We see many, many, many nations rise up against the people of Israel. They came to wage war against Yahweh and his covenant people. In fact, look at 11 verse 4, chapter 11 verse 4. It describes these, these massive armies in greater detail than any of Israel's enemies we've seen yet in the book of Joshua. This 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 giant mass of people, at least the ESV renders it a horde. It was a giant mass of people. There, there was no way to count how many people who were waging war against Israel. It only says this: that there were more people fighting than there were like grains of sand on a seashore. Can, can, can you imagine? And not only that, but these people had weapons, they had horses, they had chariots. And they were also unified. Can you imagine a horde, a giant mass of people with better weapons than Israel? Better weapons, more people, more nations, all rising up against one. It's needless to say, this coalition was more impressive than the nation of Israel. They were certainly a larger army than the nation of Israel. They had horses, they had chariots. So, have we seen. This mighty of an army in Joshua so far rising up against Israel once. No. This was the ultimate challenge that they received so far in the book of Joshua. And you might think, you might think as they saw this horde coming over the hill, well, the Israelites, you know, they probably saw the army and, 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 and you know, as they're coming to wage war against Israel, they were probably standing confident before the Lord. You know, they probably did nothing but, but recount of God's goodness and His, and His providence in the past because, you know, God was, was always faithful to deliver them in the past and, and they'd probably, you know, deliver them in the future. And so in that moment, they could stand there with no doubting, right? Probably not. Again, let's remember, these are real human beings that are just like us. How do we tend to act, those of us who've seen Christ crucified and ascended to the throne of heaven, and we know that he sits on the throne right now, how do we react when trials come? What is the posture of our heart when life is more than we can handle? See, in spite of God's overwhelming faithfulness in our lives, how often do we crumble when we are met with trials? How often do we respond with deep anxiety, deep depression, constant worry, or dark sadness? How often does the presence of trials in our life consume us, control us? See, trials can often zap us of confidence, the will to even work, and even making it difficult for us to want to get out of bed in the morning. Anyone been there? Anybody been there through trials? Yet more than anything, the way that we respond to trials reveals more about us than it causes something in us. The way we respond to trials or seemingly impossible situations tells us a lot about where our hope is found. You see, a heart that is hopeless is a heart that has set its gaze inward. It is a heart that seeks to pull itself up by its bootstraps, to take inward stock of its own skills, abilities, resources, to find refuge in its own wisdom, to seek validation of its own preconceived emotions. In other words, the hopeless heart is a narcissistic and self-centered heart. The hopeless heart is a self-reliant heart. The hopeless heart is a heart that, is, that has put all of its hope in all the wrong places. and It is absolutely imperative, Christians, hear me, to know that God, even post-salvation, God never calls us to put our hope in any other place than in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Period. Yet, the good shepherd, he knows his sheep, doesn't he? The good shepherd knows his sheep. He looks on us who are fickle and frail and prone to wander and prone to forget, prone to do foolish things. He looks to us and he reminds us of his promises. He reminds us of his faithfulness and his ability to bring all that he desires into completion. And he speaks to us with compassion. This is exactly what happens in chapter 11, verse 6 as they see these armies and likely were scared, as they see these armies and likely struggle to walk by faith, there the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You see, when there is every earthly reason to despair in that moment, Yahweh reminds his people, do not fear I am the Lord, and I am at work. See, that is what they needed to hear. They didn't need to hear, you're so great, Israel. You're so mighty, Israel. Go get him, Israel. No. The Lord God pointed them to the one place where they could find true courage and strength, to his mighty hand. The Lord God said, I am working for your good. I am working for my glory. I am working in a way that only I will get the glory. You must understand that, Israel. These are words that are comforting for God's people to hear. These are words that people need to hear right now. I know and I know enough people in our church that are going through hard seasons, who've been through hard seasons, or might even be about to enter into a hard season. You see, in every season, in every circumstance, we need to know this, that God is working for our good and for his glory. Everything. This doesn't mean that every season will be peaceful, Christian. It simply means that because God is working, we can have peace in every season. In every season, we can have hope. We can have Courage, we can have confidence, we can have assurance, we can walk by faith, knowing that it is God who accomplishes all that he pleases. And his purpose is for his people through every trial. Whatever trial you're going through right now, know this, that it is for your good. It is for your good. We must know this, that trusting in the Lord It's not a one-time event in our life. We don't just trust him for salvation at one one point in our life and then we trusted him, going to heaven. It's in life's most challenging seasons that we're called to trust him. In everything, God's will for his people is to trust him. See, this is evident in verses 6 through 9, chapter 11, 6 through 9. As the Lord slays the mighty coalition with their impressive weaponry, Yahweh commands His people to hamstring the horses and to burn their chariots with fire. Now, I'm not a smart man, and I had to look up what hamstringing a horse was. But to hamstring a horse was to cut the back tendon of the horse, rendering the horse utterly useless. I understand what it means to burn a chariot. You set it on fire and render it useless. Now from a practicality standpoint, you might wonder why the Lord would not simply deliver these horses and deliver these chariots over to Israel. You might think, well, shouldn't we just redeem the horses? Shouldn't we just redeem the chariots? Use them for God's purposes. You know they were they were not used for God's purposes. And now they're using them for God's purposes. See, see, friends. God wasn't simply concerned in the objective of victory for His people. How they fought was every bit as important as the outcome. Consider God's word to His people in Deuteronomy twenty verses one through four. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. Why? Because you're so great? Because you're so mighty? Because you're so wise, Israel? No. For the Lord, your God, is with you. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people of Israel and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. Why? Because you're so good. No! For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. The Israelites were to earn the victory. They didn't. They were to fight. God gave them the victory. Christians, God was the one who fought. Friends, this is the message of Joshua. God is the one who brings the victory. God was the one who would deliver the enemy over to them. God was the justice bringer. God was the life sustainer. God was the coalition killer. God was the sun stiller. God was the prostitute redeemer. God was the wall destroyer. God was the river divider. God was the covenant keeper. God was the soul strengthener. God was the courage giver. It was all God. and It was never the Israelites. You see, God was the hero who worked in spite of faithless people. He is the hero. You see, plan A and the promised land was always for God to get the glory. That was the plan. God's goal for his people was for them to say what David says so boldly in Psalm 20, verses 7 through 8. Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall but we rise and stand upright. See, it's easy. It's easy to say that they trusted in the Lord God alone. It's easy to say that, isn't it? It's easy to confess that with our mouths. It's easy to say, I I, I, I don't trust in horses. I don't trust in chariots. I trust in the Lord God. But what happens when God says, burn the chariots? Hamstring the horse. See, it's easy to say, I don't love money. I don't put my trust in money. But what happens when the opportunity to be generous What it gives sacrificially comes upon you? What happens when we don't have as much money in the bank as we used to? It's easy to say, I don't put my hope in my health But what happens when the Lord in his loving kindness gives us cancer? It's easy to say, I don't hope in my spouse. But what happens when they break the marriage covenant or make life hell for you? You see, I find that the Lord allows me to go through trials to reveal where my hope really is. He is so kind to show me where my heart's true affections lie. And his sovereign will is for him to reveal my idols to be burned. To be burned. He is calling me and every Christian in this room to truly trust him fully, to love him deeply and to live for him more faithfully. They call it to trust God, hamstring the horses, and burn the chariots. It wasn't figurative. It was a demonstration of their faith in Yahweh that actually had some teeth to it. It wasn't just enough to say, oh, we trust Yahweh, some as some, like, slogan that they walked around saying. Yeah, trusting Yahweh looked a certain way. In, in other words, their lives demonstrated the trust that they had in God by the way that they lived. If they were to trust God, they would obey God's commands. See, true trust in the Lord, it wasn't just words alone. It looked a certain way. It looked like a conformity to God's word. Christian, this is God's will for you today. It is not for you to boast of your, of your faith verbally and to walk in rebellion against the Lord. It is to obey Him. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. You see, when we consider the, these words of Psalm 20, how easy can it be to put the onus back on us? Can't it? It's very easy. It can be easy to pat ourselves on the back and say, We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We emphasize the we. Or we rise and stand upright. We. See, the declaration of Psalm 20 is not meant to be a pat on the back for God's people. You are not the point of Psalm 20. It is not meant to be a declaration of how good we are, but of how good God is. Any ounce of goodness in us is a result of God's sovereign grace and goodness in our lives. Period. If our trust is in Christ alone, it is only because of God's sovereign grace alone. Period. In fact, we can read books like Joshua or Deuteronomy. We we can look at these pagan kings who deserve the wrath of God. And we can think, thank God I'm not like those kings. Thank God I'm not like those pagans. Thank God I'm not like these wicked nations who do these wicked abominations before the Lord. Christians, apart from God's sovereign choice to save you before the foundation of the world, left to yourself, you are far worse than any of these kings. And so am I. You are not the hero. You are the Amorite king. See, apart from God's sovereign hand, we would be the ones raging against the Lord with all of our might. Apart from God's mercy, we would be the one hiding from his presence in a cave. We would be the ones who received God's judgment and who were cursed and put on a tree and thrown into utter darkness for all of eternity, if left to ourselves. That would be our heart's ambition. All of us. You see, these kings in these different passages in the book of Joshua, in large part, while they are real people, they represent who we are and what we deserve apart from Christ Jesus. We deserve God's unrelenting judgment because of our sin. We deserve to be slain because of our lack of true fear before the Lord. We deserve for God to hide his face from us because of our rebellion from him. See, we are just like these kings in every way. Left to ourselves, when we see God, we would prone to stoop to self-sufficiency, to lean on our own wisdom and our own tactics to make things right with God, or we would wage war against him. We would try to trick God. We would try to manipulate Him. We would try to deceive Him. Yet every strategy would fail. Left to ourselves, hear me, we would receive God's wrath forever. Yet, God's will wasn't to leave it up to us to reconcile ourselves to Him. Out of His abundant grace, he sent his son Jesus to become a curse for us. Jesus came as a man, and he was like us in every respect, yet he was not with sin. He did not rebel from the Father, but obeyed him every second of every day. He never had an evil thought. He had never had an evil motive. He is truly holy, 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 holy. Because of his sinless life, he was uniquely qualified to take the punishment of our sin for us. Because of our sin, we stood wretched before God. Because of Christ's sinlessness, he stands worthy before God. He is worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor, now and forever, evermore. He was worthy to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. See, the unrighteous kings were caught in their sin and their lifeless bodies were hung on a tree. Yet, our Savior offered his life on a tree to make atonement for our sins. Because Christ died on that tree, he paid the penalty of our sin. There was nothing left to do, which is why when Christ offered his life, he cried, it is It is finished. There is nothing left to do. The penalty of our sins has been paid in full, Christians. You see, the unrighteous Amorite kings, after dying, were put in a cave and, and stones were rolled up against that cave. And Joshua 10.27 tells us that the stones remain to this day. And our Savior Jesus was put into a tomb after he died. And a stone was put in front of that tomb as well. However, on the third day, the stone was rolled away and Jesus rose from the dead. He revealed himself to his disciples. He revealed himself to hordes and hordes and hordes of people. Then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives, ruling and reigning to this very day. See, the Amorite kings stayed dead. Their rule and their land was short. Yet Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever. The Amorite kings together could not conquer a single city such as Gibeon. Yet one day Jesus will return. He will put every one of his enemies under his feet. He will send them to an eternal judgment in hell. And he will rule over a new earth and a new heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And if you are in Christ, you will be with him forever. Because of his work, not because of yours. So as we close, I hope it is evident, friends, that our hope alone is in Jesus Christ. Alone. Alone. Our only hope to true joy is found in Jesus. Our only hope to wage war against sin is Jesus. Our only hope to ease our anxiety is Jesus. Our only hope for security in this life is Jesus. Our only hope for fulfillment in this life, it is Jesus. Our only hope to to live a life that actually matters, friends, it is Jesus. Our only hope to finish well, elderly people, it is Jesus. Our only hope to forgive others in this life, it is Jesus. Our only hope to truly be forgiven in life is Jesus. Our only hope for salvation is Jesus. Our only hope for all of eternity is what, church? It is Jesus. Because Jesus is the hero. Jesus is king. And he invites us to die to ourselves to die to our striving, to die to our self-sufficiency, to die to our rebellion, to die towards our apathy towards him, and instead to look to the one whom all of our hope is found. And who is that church? It is Jesus. Amen.